Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Dunhuang in northwest China's Gansu province is a treasure chest of ancient art and artifacts dating back to the first millennium, located near where the ancient Silk Roads split into northern and southern routes. Dunhuang served as a vibrant hub of trade and cultural exchanges until the 11th century. Its 735 caves, known as the Morgao Caves, contain the largest depository of historic documents along the Silk Roads. These caves are also filled with murals and statues depicting Buddhist imagery, but also those of other religions and secular life. It was first listed as UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1987, one of the first in China. But for a long time, the study of Dunhuang was not so much a Chinese affair as only less than one-third of the historical documents are currently housed in China. So what is the current state of protection and research concerning Dunhuang? What is being done to protect these artifacts and arts while making them available to people around the world using modern technology? And what else needs to be done? Welcome to a special edition of The Point with me, Li coming to you from Beijing. I'm pleased to be joined from Dunhuang by American Neil Schmidt, the first full-time foreign researcher at the Dunhuang Academy. I'm also pleased to be joined from Beijing by Ning Chiang, professor of art history and art communication at Beijing Foreign Studies University, who worked for over seven years in Dunhuang. And last but not least, from Beijing by commentator David Ferguson, honorary English editor at Foreign Language press the warmest welcome to all of you gentlemen Neil let me go to you since you have such a unusual study um, what brought you to Dunhuang in the first case I understand you <coughs> visited that place as early as in 1987 what brought you there and what made you fascinated about this place that you dedicated the next 30 years studying it the reason why I came to Dunhuang uh, way back in 1987 <laughs> was because I uh, read a book, uh, which was actually a translation of some narratives from the library cave, the so-called library cave. Um, and I was so entranced by this uh, translation and also the notes, which were so rich, the footnotes were so rich in terms of history, literature, uh, of course, culture and religion, uh, that I decided I had to go to this place. I had to go visit uh, Dunhuang, where, of course, this material had come from. But Neil? After the first visit, you stayed, and your heart stayed, and uh, for a good 30, 35 years. Yes, I mean, it's, uh, again, you know, Dunhuang is so enchanting. There's so much material here that it's easy in some ways to lose yourself. It's uh, lose yourself in the art, the human creativity, the amount of historical documents that we find here. And so Dunhuang is this a large data set. Uh, and there's nothing else like it in the world. Of course, it's it's a compendium of human creativity. And there's so much that you can do here in terms of asking questions and finding answers. What is the question that you are most fascinated about? And did you find the answer yet? Well, so there's a large question about how the caves were used. You know, what was what actually happened in the in the caves? And I think it's a complex question. But it's one that, of course, visitors ask, you know, well, why did people create these caves? Uh, what were they doing in them? The answer to that is, is rather complicated in certain ways. But, you know, part of the, these, the major reason why these caves were created 
uh, were as acts of uh, donation and you know uh, gifts in a way to the Buddha and you know to to in terms of gaining salvation in terms of improving the lives of the donors who created them. And I also understand that there is very nuanced um, fusion of mm. different cultures from the West, yeah. from the East, from Central Asia, from the Uyghur speaking areas, uh, from India, for instance, even as, sure. f uh, as further West as Greek cultural elements, artistic yes. elements were found in these, in these places. How come? How come? Well, you know, Dunhuang is this uh, a point where so many cultures come together, right? It's, it's at the end of the Hashi Corridor, on the Silk Road, of course, and it was a meeting point uh, where all these confluences uh, come together. And we see a great example of, of this mix of cultures, this kind of cosmopolitanism, uh, especially in Cave 285. Uh, so in Cave 285, we have elements, we, there are Greek elements. Uh, there's Persian influence. Uh, there's Indian influence as well. There, uh, we have Hindu deities. And of course, we have Buddhist deities as well, and even Taoism. So all these cultures in a single cave, all these cultures come together. And it's, it's quite miraculous in some ways. Yeah. Well, what does that say about the kind of mindset, about the kind of, um, you know, what is going on in that place, which is at the border of the deserts, you know, to the right. western, western, far away from the government centers of uh, those times, the Tang Dynasty, of course, being the height of it. What does that say about that era? Because I think there are some controversy. Some people say Tang Dynasty was very open, very, um, you know, outward looking, but others say people just came to the Tang Dynasty from different parts of the world. Nobody really blocked them, but the, the, the Tang Dynasty governors and the people were never actively spreading their culture. So did you find any answer in, in these regards? Well, you know, so it's interesting because this one cave that I mentioned, 285, is actually earlier than the Tang Dynasty. Uh, and it shows this blend of cultures and religions. And the blend, it's not conflictual, right? So it's, no, it's not this sort of zero-sum mentality of, of culture and cultural domination. It's a, it's a really harmonious blend. Uh, and again, this is before the Tang Dynasty. And we also find that, of course, during the Tang Dynasty as well, where, you know, China was, there was a real sense of confidence. Uh, and China was very able to assimilate and take on uh, all sorts of different cultures and, and people uh, from, you know, around Eurasia. Mm -hmm. But again, these terrific artifacts, these, these art creations, the, the beauty of the art itself, how mm. would you compare uh, the level of create creativity and artistic skills in those era to what we imagine to be the level back then? Well, uh, that's, that's a great question, because here we are really on the frontier of China in some ways, right? Um, in a small oasis, you know, far, far away from the capital, Chang'an. And the artistry uh, and the refinement uh, of the art is incredible. And so if we think here we are on the edge, in some ways, of civilization, as it were, imagine what was going on in Chang'an. Imagine the level of quality that must have existed. And here we just have, you know, uh, fractions of what, what was occurring throughout China. Uh, but thankfully, they're well preserved here. 
so what are you doing in terms of, I mean, the academy, in terms of uh, preservation? Do you find adequate is being done and how is modern technology a factor in helping making these artifacts, artworks and the research results available to kind of house, to people who are interested around the world? Well, so one of the great things uh, uh, that's been unfolding for the past 30, 35 years is a cooperation with the Getty Conservation Institute, uh, which is connected to the Getty Museum in Los Angeles. And the Dunhuang Academy has a long, long, uh, long-term relation uh, with the uh, Getty Conservation Institute to implement what are called best practices uh, in terms of conservation, in terms of uh, preserving uh, the materials using the latest scientific methods, uh, but not just that, but also a tour, uh, tourism management, uh, because you want to balance the two. You want to balance the interests of scholars and academics and conservationists, but also, of course, the stakeholders who are interested uh, both in sharing uh, Dunhuang by having tourists come, but of course also the, the building the economy here as well. Over the past 35 years that you have been dealing with, you have been, you know, living the Dunhuang life, what, what's the biggest change you have seen in terms of conservation and research? Well, I think beyond the, the technical and the scientific aspects, I think one of the great things uh, is the ability to share Dunhuang materials that now happens uh, online. For example, there's a site called eDunhuang.com. What's great about eDunhuang is that you can actually go inside the caves, right? So there are 30 caves that have been digitized and it's possible to actually tour the caves one by one by entering in, you know, digitally online and see the materials that way, see the art that way. Mm. What is the progress in terms of preserving the ancient materials, the murals, the, the historical documents as climate change and also the yes. humidity which comes in right. with the visits of tourists? Uh, what is being done there? Do you see stepped up efforts and better technology being applied in terms of those aspects? Yes, yeah, so what you mentioned is actually the major problem, which is humidity. The humidity that people bring into the caves uh, through, for example, their breath and breathing. Um, and so what, what the Getty and uh, the Academy have done is they've uh, used scientific methods to figure out which caves can actually accept a large number of people on a, on a regular basis. And so the, the science now allows us to monitor uh, the, uh, the atmosphere, uh, the amount of humidity uh, in very, very precise terms. Then you know we can adjust uh, the tourist uh, numbers to the the ability for the caves to to uh, to breathe, as it were. Yeah. How come the you, as uh, an American scholar, became the first ever full-time researcher <laughs> located uh, to work in Dunhuang Academy? And how is life for you? How much longer do you want to stay? I was here actually as a visiting scholar in 2017, and and the director then, Director Wang Wang Shudong. Uh, who's now the head of the Palace Museum, um, uh, invited me to come uh, and asked if I'd like to come on a permanent basis. And of course, I was extremely honored uh, and said yes. Uh, and that was uh, five years ago. So I've been here since then. Um, and it's, you know, I love Dunhuang. What can I say? You know, it's, it's such a magical place. And for me as a scholar, to be able to be here uh, and to spend time, for example, in the caves or work with my colleagues uh, you know, who are all specialists in aspects of uh, Dunhuang and Dunhuang studies, uh, is, is, you know, is incredible for me. And after 35 years, this is still the case? The feeling, is still, still the so, the feeling is still so strong? 
Absolutely. Even more so, I think. I'm going to go to Ning Chiang, Professor Ning Chiang, who also has a fascinating story with the Dunhuang Grotto, and he is actually uh, a friend, and they used to work together, right, uh, Professor Ning? You also went to Dunhuang many years ago, I understand, as early as in the 1980s, and you were a very, very young chap back then, and you just took the train, and you, and you went there. What was that story? I was an undergraduate student at Fukan University. I just saw a picture of Den Huang and then all of a sudden fell in love with this place. Uh, and then with the invitation of the director of Den Huang Research Institute, uh, Professor Duan, uh, later he became my advisor. A professional advisor there. So uh, I went to Dunhuang by train, spent several days on the train, and then finally arrived there. Oh, I remember it's overnight. I, I slept in the hotel, and the next morning, sun bright. It's so beautiful and uh, so impressive. And then the director, Director Dwyer, asked me a question. How do you feel about Dunhuang? My answer is, I want to die here. Oh. <laughs> then Mr. Duan said, no, you are a person of Dunhuang. As Leo just said, it's overwhelming. When you enter the caves, the color, the, the shape, and the story, everything just haunts the interior head in your eyes, it's overwhelming. And it's just like you get drunk. Mm. And that is the power of art. That is Dunhuang. For young people and for old people and for everybody, it's just like that. Do you have to be a history lover to love Dunhuang? I mean, you said, you know, you were drunk. You felt like you were drunk by the power of, of history of art. But uh, specifically, what about it? Can the ordinary people grasp the beauty of it and what's behind such beauty? Of course, Dunhuang is loved by everybody because it's so complex and so real. I should have used this word, right? Because everybody could find something relevant to himself or herself. You would find you in the cave. What makes you say that? Why is it that case? And give us an example, if you can. When I visited that, that, that the caves for the first time, the uh, senior scholars guided me uh, for several days inside of the cave. and. Uh, they shared this experience with me. They said, you see that sculpture, that guy? Does that look like you? And all of a sudden you said, yeah, it's me. <laughs> and I said, look at the one next to you. It's my song. Oh, you, you just find everybody, right? Is it imagination? No, it's not, not the imagination because you have more than 2,000 sculptors there. And you have, say, uh, tens of thousands of painted figures there. Eventually, you would find something relevant to you. 
So I think that is important. Even you're a foreigner, right? If you're a guy from India or you even from Italy, and all of a sudden you find that guy looks like you or your dad or your mother, then you, you find the personal name to the different paintings and sculptures. And this is formed throughout, as I said, almost a millennia uh, from 5th century or from even earlier to uh, hundreds of years later to the Yuan Dynasty, for instance, until Dunhuang's importance declined. Um, how did that come into being? What you just said, you know, the emotional convergence, the exchange of culture, the exchange of religious beliefs, and the coexistence of different culture and different beliefs. This just happened. How come? What does that say about the Silk Roads, maybe? Yeah, I, I think Dunhuang is a symbol of the Silk Road, or a symbol of human feeling and belief. So everybody would like to come here. Just Neil Schmidt is just a good example, right? He grew up in the United States, but uh, all of a sudden he saw Dunhuang and uh, fell in love with this place. I, I think it, it, it explains how people throughout the world could uh, become a fan of Dunhuang. I, I think that it's, it's very interesting, right? We, of course, understand the Dunhuang paintings and sculptures were made primarily for Buddhist belief. Mm. However, because it were created by people from all different backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, right? They still contributed to the construction uh, of, of the Dunhuang caves. So I think the uh, diversified background of people who created the Dunhuang Mm -hmm. uh, contributed to the uh, love of Dunhuang by today's people. Because it's just like their ancestors, right? You, you came from different places, different uh, countries, different cultures, came here, created Dunhuang. Now you're the uh, generations later, but still you came here. Yeah. you see your ancestors there. Yeah. Professor Ning, things must have changed tremendously. You were talking about taking trains for a couple of days and, you know, sleeping on those trains, of course, to arrive in Dunhuang back then. And the communication technology was so primeval that, uh, you know, there was uh, maybe uh, only one telephone line to connect with the rest of China, let alone the rest of the world. How has conservation and research capabilities improved over the years is do you see right now you are not there anymore but do you see uh, stepped up efforts and and uh, investments into the preservation and research of Dunhuang? Yes I see tremendous improvement of the uh, conservation technology and the effort which to preserve the Dunhuang caves uh, by people from all over the world, like uh, uh, Leo mentioned, the Gaddy Conservation Institute and the Australia, Australia Heritage Conservation Committee, uh, and uh, uh, experts from Italy, uh, even from Poland in the 1960s, 
That is not just the Chinese heritage. It is the heritage of Ming Tai. Yeah. Technology improvement is not the only issue.、Mm-hmm. I think more important is the awareness、mm-hmm. of the value of the Dunhuang treasures、uh, throughout the world, not only in China. So now I think uh, uh, the icon of Dunhuang is more popular. Uh, say in an ordinary mind,、yeah. in China and、uh, in the world. Let me go to my third guest, David Ferguson, as an observer, as a commentator, someone who has lived in China. He has、uh, told me he unfortunately has not been able to visit Dunhuang. The trip has been postponed again and again, but he always wanted to do as I do. But David, there is something quite unusual these days about. Artifacts about traditional culture, about uh, uh, cultural conservation, about archaeology is that there is a—it's all rage on the internet with the young people. Have you noticed that? I mean, I certainly do. What do you think explains that? If you have noticed, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be here, Yusin. And as you said, I haven't been to Dunhuang. I was supposed to go to Dunhuang、uh, as part of、uh, research work on a book I wrote about Gansu last year, and unfortunately, because of COVID, the the trip was rescheduled, and the、um, uh, and Dunhuang came off the agenda, which is a pity because otherwise I would I'm sure I would have、uh, met Neil.、Uh, it's a great pleasure to hear people like Neil and Professor Ning speaking with such passion and enthusiasm、mm. about. Dunhuang and about culture and artifacts in general,、um, I think there is definitely a growing interest,、um, and I think in China it's important, and I think it's in China it's a reflection of a top-down strategy. But you know that、uh, President Xi's great emphasis on Chinese culture, right?、Uh, That it's part of the four sphere confidence that he talks about: confidence in China's socialist theory, theory and path, and system and culture. I think it's really important, and th- there's a very important reason why he does that. China went through a long period of oppression and suppression, from being the most powerful country in the world to a country that was occupied and、uh, and poor. It takes a long time to build up. Confidence in a culture when you've been through that, and it's understandable that to a certain extent, China and the Chinese are rather tentative about their system and about their culture. Now, my book was specifically about rural revitalization and poverty alleviation.、Mm-hmm. My book was reasons for confidence in China's system, but China's culture is just important, and it's a very old culture. Although I didn't visit. Dunhuang itself. I did visit,、uh, for example, a museum in Tianshui, which is also in Gansu by... Province. Yeah, that's right. Now, one of the things that I was struck by there was the ancient pottery. You were looking at artifacts of an extreme level of sophistication that dated back a very long time. Now, China talks about five thousand years of civilization and five thousand years of culture, and. It's an unfortunate fact that some critics in the West are either sceptical about this, or even they tend to ridicule it. And I think it's really important that Chinese people are able to 
present the, their culture in an assertive way, not an attentive way. And the thing that, the reason I'm talking about this, the thing that struck me in Tiantri was that this ancient pottery, it wasn't 5,000 years old, it was 10,000 years old, accurately right. dated from the graves that had been found in. And the level of sophistication spoke of a culture <laughs> and a civilization that had to exist. You simply can't produce that kind of artifact. You don't have the time and you don't have the artistic ability without the support of a significant culture and a significant civilization. This was stuff that was 10,000 years ago, but it itself was evidence of older culture and older civilization so, because that kind of stuff yeah. doesn't uh, come into existence overnight. Exactly. That's what people say about the oracles, about the, the very, very ancient uh, form of Chinese language. It was not born overnight. The, the fact that you found exactly. these oracles, you know, thousands of mm -hmm. years ago means that these words were already in, in evolution long before that. I have to go back to Neil because of this very rare opportunity to have Neil on the show. Neil, what else needs to be done? What is your biggest uh, headache? Well, you know, of course, the weather here is challenging. Uh, it's very hot in the summer. It's very, very cold uh, in the winter. But that's, you know, you get used to it. Um, my biggest headache is uh, trying to assimilate all the information here, uh, really trying to make sense and, you know, to find ways to uh, explain patterns that we see across the art, across the caves, among yeah. manuscripts. Uh, you know, it's not a headache. It's a pleasure, actually. How good do you have to be in Chinese to be able to do all of the work? Is how big of a problem is language? Well, so the uh, so the texts are uh, from the library cave are in multiple languages, uh, everything from Sanskrit to Sogdian, and of, of course Chinese and Tibetan. Um, you have to be able to read, uh, of course, classical Chinese. Uh, but on top of that, the challenge is it's there are a lot of local variants for characters, also uh, local expressions. Um, so um, medieval Chinese, that's that's a, a major challenge, but it's something that I enjoy. I very, very much enjoy. Wow. I wish I would be able to be in your skin for one day and have that joy and that ability, but uh, we have to leave it there. Time is very limited. Many thanks to Neil Schmidt, the first full-time foreign researcher at Donghuang Academy, Professor Ning Chiang, Professor of Art History and Art Communication at Beijing Foreign Studies University, who worked for seven years in Donghuang, who wanted to die in Donghuang because he loved it so much, and uh, David Ferguson, honorary English editor at Foreign Language Press. With that, we come to the end of this special edition of The Point with me, Liu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Liu Xin in Beijing. You've got The Point. <laughs>